Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Second Chance Podcast. This is episode 64, and my guest today is none other than the talented Brenda Burungi, aka Lady Unchained. Love that tag. Brenda's passionate about second chances and is an important advocate for life after prison, having been sentenced to two and a half years inside at the age of 21 for a violence offence. She's since become a poet, a facilitator, a mentor, and a radio host for National Prison Radio. Brenda is also founder and creative director of Unchained Poetry, an artistic platform for people with lived experience of the criminal justice system. She's also the host of Unchained Nights, a night of inspirational storytelling through poetry and music. Brenda's poetry workshops in prisons and in the community for women centres helps women find their creative voices. Although she's out of prison and living her best life, she continues to challenge the ex-offender label through creativity. Thanks for coming on my podcast. It's really great to have you here. And You're welcome. We, we first met, gosh, I don't know how long ago it was now. It must have been three or four years ago. I can't believe that time has passed. But we first met when you came along and you and I had a chat about you know, your your aspirations, having not left prison very long ago. Tell me a little bit, Brenda, about how, how your career has developed since that first conversation you and I met. I think it was at the O2 in, in the Greenwich, O2. wasn't it? Yes, it was. Um, do you know what? Like, it has actually grown. So, Like, I think I remember you saying, um, you're going to get there. And don't forget, you know, your background and where you've come from, but you are going to get there. And I, I, I think I smiled um, because I could, I believed it and I do believe that things, good things are going to happen. But when you've been back and forth, sometimes it's like you need somebody else to tell you, you know, you're going to get there. It's somebody that doesn't 
you know, you don't have no um, contact. You don't have, you don't need to please me. You don't, there's nothing, you don't need to say nice things. You know, you're not my mum, my dad, my brother. Like, you don't need to say this stuff. So when you, um, after that day, I remember kind of talk, talking to Jude and kind of going, okay, I need to do this like properly. So I have written a book, Raphael. <laughs> I've written oh, a book. <laughs> I've written a book of poetry called Behind Bars. Um, and it's basically taking you, through the journey so before jail in prison and after life after prison um and that will be coming out next year july so that's that's happened um and, and that's something i never really thought i i could do i think i i kind of put a barrier on myself um in regards to yes i'm a poet but i'm so a self-taught poet so i kind of didn't see like my grammar i didn't feel like for a book <laughs> it, it would be enough um but I've got a publisher they reached out to me and now I've written this book so that's done um I've also done a documentary on Holloway so I had the opportunity to go back into Holloway with a group of women who once lived in Holloway and we kind of walked through Holloway knowing that Holloway is now closed 2016 it closed down it's an empty space. And I, I remember having all these emotions that I thought I left in Holloway. And now that documentary's basically been done. We've kind of explored how do women get there and how does it feel to actually be in Holloway? Um, and it was interesting, actually, for me. Something that I learned in jail was that, you know, people go back. They come out of jail and they, they come straight back. And I remember when I was in prison, kind of thinking, why do they keep coming back? You know, what? You know, I remember even asking the officer, sir, if you give me the next lady's release date, I promise you I won't come back. <laughs> and he said, that's not how it works, Brenda. You know, that's just not how it works. But, you know, being on the outside after prison, I, I, I learned very quickly how easy it is for you to feel like prison is a safer option. Um, and doing the documentary for Holloway, kind of that explored some of the women who actually felt safe when they got to Holloway, which is not my experience. My experience when I got to Holloway, I was afraid. I was very fearful. I didn't know who was going to, I had to fight to, you know, be the big boss. You know, you, you think about films, don't you, when you get to prison. So it was amazing to do that. And that's coming out next year as well. And what channel will that be on? We have no idea, Raphael. We have no idea. It's all kind of secretive at the moment. I think they are aiming high. Um, they are aiming quite high. Fingers crossed. It gets. It goes maybe Netflix, you know, something big. Um, but I also done my own film. So I um, just finished recording this year alongside the Holloway documentary. We done a documentary about me. And it was... It's called Budlia, The Unchained Story. So it's my journey going from, I guess, inmate to advocate. And it follows the people that I work with. So some of the artists that I work with, a mentor, you know, some of the artists that perform at Unchained Nights. But also it explored one in particular person who didn't actually go to jail. He's one of those guys that really kind of escaped prison. He he saved himself, um, but he was literally on the road to prison um, at a, a very young age. And now he's a, this amazing artist, amazing mentor. And so I'm trying to motivate him to kind of start speaking to young people, I guess, in prison so that they can see where they fit with his story. And is there another direction that they could have taken to avoid this journey to prison. So it's been busy. I've also done Cook and Woods. I've done seven weeks in Cook and Woods uh, called um, Unchained Leaders Project. So trying to get young people to understand where they can be leaders and how they can become leaders. And it's also important for me to explain to them that 
the group of friends that they had, if they were the big boss, even though they're young kids, if they were the big boss and they had a group of people that followed them, they never really got the mentality to create a business, to, to have a leadership role. Um, and it's, it's just something for them to look into that experience and see life in a different in a different view. So it's been busy. <laughs> I've been literally touring prisons left, right and centre, um, Cook and Wood, Ellsbury, Pentonville. Um, hopefully I'll do some more next year. Um, and I'm actually now the artistic director for the Cook and Wood project. So I've been promoted. It sounds like you have been really busy, but that doesn't end there, does it? Because you're also the host of the National Prison Radio Show. What? Tell me about the the radio show, because people often say when you leave prison, you kind of want to leave it behind. But sometimes that experience, and you're an advocate of that, you know, your advocacy in the work and the talent that you have, sharing that with other people is, is a purpose and, and, and it, it aims high. What about the prison radio? What are you doing on the National Prison Radio? So I've got, I had two shows. So I had the the original one is uh, Free Flow. And that one, I actually picked that up. Um, I got given that show during lockdown. So when the world went on standstill, and I remember um, asking my producers, I said, you know, it's, it's an instrumental show. We play the instrumentals twice so that they can write and be creative during that time of the, the instrumentals playing. But what I, I, I decided during that time, especially because it was a lockdown, I, I asked them, I said, look, is there any way we can ask them to call me in? you know, send me some bars down the phone line and I can advise them how they can, you know, create them and, and develop the, that writing skill and the technique. Also, it's all about positivity. So even with what I write, you know, I don't glorify crime. Even my artists, we're not allowed to, you know, I want you to talk about your experience, but don't talk about it in a way where you're glorifying it. So for them, it's listening to me say, okay, we're playing drill now, but can you write some positive bars? And Actually, we have had some. We have not many, but we have had some. Um, and that is literally once a week, every week um, on Fridays. I record that. It goes out on Saturdays and Mondays. And it's just a way to communicate with um, the people in prison that what I do say to them every day, every time I speak to them, I say, you know, I want you to remember that I am you after a prison sentence. You know, I think for me, there was no map, there was no direction of what what I should do after prison. Kind of being a part of National Prison Radio was literally by chance being able to find people that knew about National Prison Radio that then told me about it. So I'm really there to kind of motivate them, help them be creative. And then just off the back of that, I got a spin-off show, which was called Bars. And that is basically the same show, but with a more... I guess we had artists, we had different guests, like celebrities. Let's, have, let's, say, let's say it right. We had celebrities on the show, um, artists, some that had been to prison, kind of talking back. So, I'm, I mean, there was one interview with Hack Baker, you know, who has been to jail and start, picked up that guitar in prison. And it was just amazing for him to give his side of how he became creative in such a confined space, in such a space of like depression and anger. And that show actually won um, a gold award at the Audio Production Awards this year. <laughs> um, and also Free Flow got nominated for at the Arius Awards and we got a bronze for that. So we're getting there. And, uh, and it's just, I guess for me, you're right. When people leave prison, they want to kind of forget about it and move on and just kind of like, just think that that's it now. I've, I've got a new life. But actually it's really hard to do that when you're constantly reminded, you know, for example, applying for a job, you're constantly reminded you have to declare your, um, you know, criminal record. You know, you're going to a, an event, you have to, you know, driving licenses, insurance, all of these things are things that if you never had a criminal record, 
it it's hard to maneuver your your life out here when you never had this experience before so it's kind of giving them motivation but also showing them that they can build some kind of life after prison you use terms i was reading some of the stuff around your your journey and you and you embrace the fact and and i think when we first met as you said my message is always you know don't hide from what you are, what you, what happened to you, where you've been, etc. Use it if you can to your advantage. And and your story starts from prison. You've mentioned it a few times that you ended up in prison, and and that experience changed your life in in many many ways. But that's because you've taken the opportunity since you come out of prison, and and that's where your story starts. I mean, obviously, it doesn't start with you going to prison because you lived a life long before you, long you actually before. went up in prison. And maybe that's the place <laughs> to start. Who, who is Brenda? You know, where did Brenda grow up? What what was life like before you ended up having your brush with the law that led to you going to prison? Tell me a bit about your background, Brenda. Um, so Brenda's from South East London. Uh, she's gr- grown up in South East London her whole life. I don't even think I've ever lived in any other area. <laughs> um, so I've grown up with my mum, three sisters and an older brother. Um, very, very tight family. Um, I think my mum taught us from young that we just have to look after each other, you know, that there is us and we need to make sure we protect each other so that was installed in me you know even going to school you know if I had an issue my sister would come and talk to people or my brother would come and help me and you know it was just that like it wasn't like it was a gang family fighting we was just really there you know if you have a little sister and she's runs home crying you're going to try to figure out what's going on so you know I, I grew up in South East London with my family but I also had an amazing group of friends Two in particular boys um, who I saw as brothers, really, you know, they they have now passed away. They passed away after I got out of prison. And that's something that I, I kind of regret in my in my own decisions in life, because I feel like being in prison, I missed that time to reconnect and create new memories that I could have been carrying today. And I was very like sporty. Everyone, it's funny now that I wear makeup and like get dressed up. People are like, that's not, you know, Brenda. Brenda, like I was like tracksuit bottoms and hoodies. Like, you know, I, I was chilling with mostly guys. Uh, you know, I've got my best friends who are female and I, I call them my sisters as well. But it's like, we all kind of just acted like boys, if, if that makes sense. It was just very sporty. I actually remember my mum kind of saying to me, I'm not going to buy you new clothes no more because I was that girl that would get new trainers and new tracksuit bottoms in and I'll go outside and play goalie goalie and I'll come back all muddied up. <laughs> she's like, you know, you know, my mum's an African lady. She's like, are you a boy? Are you a girl? I don't know what is wrong with me. You know? <laughs> like, so I was very sporty. But the one thing about me was that I still had long nails that's the one thing like as for my that was the feminine side of me I I would have long nails and I used to play basketball but if the nail broke all the boys would just run away because they're like oh my god she's gonna lose her mind (laughs) so I remember playing basketball and breaking my nail and I'd be like oh my god the nail's broken and I I would look up and all the boys have gone like they're just scattered (laughs) just scattered so I was very sporty very very happy I think I think also I was always like smiley I was very reliable I remember being the child that my mum would say, if you need something done in the morning, ask Brenna to do it. Because I'd wake up and I would do stuff, you know, um, which is funny because now I hate mornings. <laughs> but, you know, back then I was like the, the the go-to person. And I also remember pocket money, pocket money. Um, for some reason, I always ended up having loads of pocket money. I don't know whether that's because back in the day, five pound credit will last you like a whole month. You know, you could buy a five pound credit 
you know, was it one-to-one back then? You know, it was, it was, it was cheaper. And so my sisters, my older sister and my older brother would always be like, oh, how much money you got left? And I'll borrow them 10 pound here, 10 pound there. And then by the end of the week, they pay me back and I've got like 50 pound, which at the time is like, I'm rich, you know? So I feel like my childhood was like very much a joyful one. I went to an all girls school, which is actually funny. Now I think about it, when I ended up in jail, that was the only time, like being around women and loads of girls when I was in a girl's school for five years, you know, and that's the only time I really connected with loads of women until I got to jail and had to kind of recalculate how I connected with these women in, to start with. So, yeah, I think I think I've had like a, a good childhood and, and also... I had one like brush with the law. I thought I was really like, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I remember this is like before bike lanes, you know, um, when you can like ride your bike on the on the um, pavement, you know, you can't ride, you're not meant to ride your bike on the pavement no more because there's actual bike lanes. And I remember I thought I was cool, probably about 11 years old, got on the bike, drove in the road. And I remember the police officer kind of pulling me over and said, you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to ride your bike there. And I went, oh my God, I'm so, I didn't even ride the bike home. I pushed it, I pushed it all the way home because, you know, I didn't want to tell my mum. I didn't want to say nothing. It was like, I was like, oh my God, like, I, you know, I remember telling my friends, I need to go arrested, you know, like, you know, oh my God, the police are going to arrest me. But that was it. It was nothing serious. Um, Of course, going to a girl's school, there's always fights, fights, every other day like I do remember one time somebody pulling out my hair um like I had like a whole bald patch here for like a while yeah like it girls are vicious you know <laughs> and I think this is why I just stayed with guys because I was like I don't I don't know how to handle you not you know you argue over everything and because I wasn't really like the going out with boys kind of thing they were more my friends people would argue with me because they thought that these boys were like my boyfriends <laughs> like my best friend they, everyone thought that was my boyfriend and people wanted to fight me and I'm like this is not my boyfriend he's just just look he takes like eye bogey out my eye he's not my boyfriend like you know so it was just like had a nice little life you know back in the day when you know there was youth centers and you could go and people are DJing and doing stuff and everyone's MCing and I remember like so solid crew Miss Dynamite oh my god like any dynamite like put on a dynamite track I will just MC so maybe I had that skill there with the poetry and the writing stuff there already um but in regards to poetry itself I don't know if I really wrote poetry um before Joel like I I personally believe that it it did come from prison however I loved English and I did quite well in English like I did I think I got like a B in English lit and like a, a scene in the whole rounded English um, language. So I was quite like, and I liked Shakespeare. Like I liked the the old words and learning old words that mean like this stuff that we know today, like wax apparently means sexy. <laughs> like and I remember all of that, we're wax, we're wax. Like, you know, so I was always very like intrigued with just like life and experiences and you know new people and dance I was I done drama in school like drama GCSE I done music you know I was very very like into the arts already but I guess after school that kind of just goes down because it was like my dream was to be an air hostess I just wanted to fly I just wanted to fly away and get far away from here you know like why I don't know maybe I was running from deep deep dark emotions that I probably weren't ready to understand as a child but I just wanted to fly away and everything in my journey I did it the right way so I was like okay I need to if I want to be an air hostess I'm going to need to do travel and tourism so I went and done travel and tourism um in sixth form pass I got BTEC then I had to go to a different college to do the second level up which was like travel and management 
organizations so you're learning everything and I've done that uh, past that that was a um, national diploma and then you know I went to Virgin Trains for work experience you know so I, I kind of like had all these connections in my head I knew what I wanted how I, what I had to get there and there was a journey <laughs> there was a journey and there was a plan prison just wasn't a part of that plan <laughs> at all so that completely threw me over it sounds like you had quite a, a, an interesting growing up, you, you know, background. Was was the uh, I know South East London because I'm from South East London, born, bred, and still live there, so I know it very well. Although it's big, um, and we don't have the two beyond the Oval or Brixton. <laughs> but but was, was your? It sounds like your your friendship group, your plan, your ambitions were all kind of going in the right direction. Was the neighbourhood that you grew up in a tough neighbourhood, i.e. typical of what we talk about today, that there's lots of distraction, there's gangs, there's drugs, there's violence? Or was you, Brenda, someone who was able to, even though it was probably around you, navigate around that and not get caught up in that? Or did that eventually happen, which which inevitably led to your going to prison? Or is there no connection? There is actually no connection. Like, the, do you know what's interesting about that? Like, obviously, where I live, like, it wasn't, when I was growing up, it wasn't, like, so much gang affiliated. It's only as I got older and I realised, oh, you know, because, I, I mean, I went to a girls' school. The boys' school was next, kind of basically, like, 10 minutes away. You know, all the boys were, like, boys that I'd gone to primary school with and, you know, we all knew each other. And I remember a time when after school, there's always that local place where everyone meets up and goes to McDonald's. I'm talking back in the days when you can get two cheeseburgers for 99p, you know, like, you know, and two apple pies for 99p those days, you know. So, <laughs> you know, I remember all of us leaving school and, you know, meeting up in like Woolwich and everyone's like, the, all the boys are together, all the girls are together, we're talking, you know. I, I remember like a, a particular time and I don't know where this footage went, but I remember that some cameras came to our local area. So everybody was trying to get on TV. I remember the guys taking off their tops and like flexing their muscles and, you know, trying to put me in <laughs> under their arm, like stand, look pretty, look pretty. You know? I don't know how to look pretty, you know? And I remember that was a good time. That was a time when all of these friends, all of my friends that I knew as guys connected, they knew each other. And I, I think it was like the age of maybe 16, 17, things changed in the area. Things changed and, you know, the, the gangs became very visible. So guys that I knew that I could, you know, chill with together were no longer chilling together. You know, I was now being told, oh, you can't hang out with this person and you can't hang out with that person. And I remember going, listen, I don't know about your gang, this gang, whatever. Just the other day we were sitting there playing basketball. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to hang out with him. You know, so I was very like not connected with it. I wasn't involved. And I remember kind of just try, really trying to understand what was happening. But it got real deep to the point that when I left my sixth form, which would have been the sixth form, which would have been in my local area, I decided to go to Lucian. I didn't want to be a Lucian person. Like I'm not joining a Lucian gang. That's where my course was, <laughs> you know, like, so I had to go to Lucian. And I remember all the guys going, oh, what? So you're going to like get NJ, you're going to get, and I'm like, what are you talking about? I'm going to school. <laughs> like, they're like, so you're going to, you're going to start rolling with a ghetto man. Yeah, you're going to, I'm like, listen, I don't know no ghetto people. Okay. <laughs> like, I just want to get an education. <laughs> I just want to get an education. You know, there was a lot of stuff happening um, around then, but I know that I, because I was very outspoken, I didn't really believe in this, like you're the bad man or whatever. You know, I, I do remember being 
kind of put in a situation where you know a, a, an older guy who I didn't know he was the big boss of the area I just looked like a guy that was bothering me you know <laughs> like you know and I've obviously just no you can't talk to me like this and I remember loads of the guys coming up to me later going you you need to be careful that's the big boss you know and I'm like the big boss of who like is he god like I don't understand you know and they're like no he's the big he runs the area and I'm like you don't run the area he's not the MP like I don't understand what how does he run the area like you know and they're like Brenda he's like he's bad people you know and we had this whole issue where this guy just basically for about a year he would just like harass me or throw things at me and I I remember standing there thinking what really have I done to deserve this you know and 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 actually saying to my mum you know we need to move (laughs) we might need to move mum because this guy is not you know he's not letting it go but eventually he let it go you know but I've never really been in that so when it came to I guess because of the way we were brought up in my family, we were just, you know, protecting each other. So if you want to call us a, a gang, a family, yeah, <laughs> we was like, we looked after ourselves, you know. So I think for me, I didn't need to be in a gang because I was already in a family that 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 really protected me, that looked out for me. And I knew they had my back regardless. Um, and also my best friends as well. Like, you know, I, I remember being caught up in situations where, that somebody will show up and they'll be like, hey, hey, hey that's Brenda, that's Brenda. And I, and I didn't know who that person was. It's just that they knew me from somebody else kind of thing. So my my fight had nothing to do with gangs, but it was very, what I would say is that once that fight happened, it, it nearly pushed me into doing certain things that made me, would have kind of affiliated me with a gang just because I had a fight in a nightclub and growing up, like I never really used to go clubbing. Um, I was in quite a serious relationship before jail, which is just uh, something that I just don't really speak about too much. But I was too, I was too young to be in that serious relationship, if that makes sense. Like I was quite young to be in that. Um, So once that ended, that's when I became, I guess, started going out and spending more time with my siblings again, because that had kind of stopped with when I was in this relationship. So going out, you know, this was like the first time that I've now reconnected with my, you know, family. And this attack happened. It was so three women. I would have been 20 at the time. And it's funny. It's not even funny, but it's, it's, it, it, I have to laugh because sometimes if I don't laugh, I'll just get emotional. Before this incident, I had stopped going to college and everything, right? So I was calculating what I should do because I wasn't sure if I can be an air hostess anymore. You know, um, I think I remember looking at the job criteria and I thought, oh my God, I can't swim. I can't swim. I'm going to (laughs) fail. Like I'm going to fail the the test. I mean, I can swim, but I'm scared of the the water. So (laughs) I might just pedal a little bit at first and then it might go a bit crazy. But um, what I decided was, I remember a lot of my friends and, and family had had children at the time. And I remember there was this this struggle of like, oh, I don't have someone to look after the kid and childcare is really expensive. Um, and somebody um, messaged me and said, oh, there's this um, course with the councils doing a child minding course. And I said, um, oh, like, how much do I have to pay for that? And they said, no, 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 it's free. And I thought, whoa, you know, nothing's free in this world, really. So I jumped to that opportunity and I, I remember going to the council and I applied. Um, they accepted me and I, I basically passed and I quali- I was qualified to, to do all this stuff um, and then what happens is after you qualify they then have to do inspections so they had to come to the property inspect the flat um, and it's this, this same flat actually um, and what they say is if you feel like there's things in your house that are not safe for children 
just put up post-it stamps. So I remember the lady coming, I had like yellow, pink, green post-it stamps all around the house. And she passed me. She said, look, I have no reason to give you this pass. Um, she said, I'm going to have, you're going to have one more inspection. That will be with Ofsted. And then after that, you'll be a qualified childminder and you can start putting up prices and start a business. And I thought, great. And I, I remember literally a week later, this is when this fight happened. And I was in a nightclub in South East London, Old Kent Road, with my sister and a family friend. And I remember my sister had a bit of like trouble. You know, she was the one that would go out. I never went out. So she had issues with people. I would hear about it through the grapevine, but I wasn't really involved in it. And a lot of people didn't really know me. So this particular night, I don't know how to say this without sounding that like so religious. Like I, I refused to go to church. Um, one of my promises growing up, because I grew up in the, the church, I was in the choir, I wrote songs, you know, Sunday school teacher. I promised God that I would not go to church on a Sunday and then go clubbing. However old I am, and this is me being a child promising God this, you know, and I, I said, I'll never go to church and then go to a club. That's really bad, God. I'll never do that to you. And I didn't do it for years. You know, I remember being asked, come to church, we're going clubbing. I'm like, no, I'll meet you at a club. I'm not coming to church. I'll meet you at a club. And this particular day, I went to church. It was an evening service. I don't remember anything that the, 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 the pastor said or whatever, to be honest with you. I just remember thinking about outfits and hair and makeup and what I was going to look like. And all I remember is one song in the service. Um, and that's it. And this particular night, I remember being in the club. I was wearing a, a white dress with a long weave. You know, back in the day, I used to wear weave so much, like every single color of weaves I had it. And I had like white, long weave, massive earrings, you know, and I remember my sister saying to me she was going to say hello to somebody. I think there was somebody that my mum knows in the, in, the, in the club or something, and she was going to say hello to that person. I remember kind of watching her walk away and then kind of looking away for a minute, but I had realised that the girls that she, the women she had beef with were kind of on the, that same side, but she went a, a different side. So I thought, okay, she's all right. And then I remember looking away and looking back and then, somehow these women had kind of swerved like they really drifted towards where she was standing and I just thought this ain't really gonna be a thing is it you know like I'm you know I wasn't a drinker back then so I'm like sipping like champagne I didn't don't like I don't even like champagne now I'm sipping champagne you know 20 years old and it just happened so quickly like it just you know clubs especially in Old Kent Road that they get so packed out so it just looked like there was like commotion it didn't really look like something serious was happening until I literally saw my sister like with you know her head down and you know this girl's like they're just hitting her and honestly Raphael my intention when I went there wasn't even to fight like it actually wasn't to fight anybody and I remember something that I did was I poured drink on her I don't know why in my head I thought that would make sense I don't know maybe because I've seen when you're drunk or you're 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 out of it people pour water on you and I thought maybe that might help <laughs> no it didn't it just kind of made everything worse and she kind of just continue doing what she was doing. And I'll be honest, in that moment, right after that, I can honestly say that I blacked out because I don't actually remember hitting this girl. I can tell you I hit her because I saw CCTV when I went to the solicitors and stuff, but I don't remember hitting her. The next thing I remember is being dragged like away and saying stop kind of thing by, a, I think it was a DJ at the time. And that's when I kind of realized, oh my God, like, I had like, a, I was bleeding, you know, I, I couldn't see the girl. And, you know, I remember everyone saying to me, like, you need to run, the police is coming. 
And I was like, you don't run away from the police. That's guilty people. Guilty people run away. That they attacked us. I'm, I'm going to talk to the police. Like, it's fine. I was obviously wrong. <laughs> um, I went and spoke to the police officer and I was very, um, very like forthcoming. I was like, hello, hi. You know, there was, it wasn't like, oh my God, the police might arrest me. I was like, hello, hi. Yes. And um, yeah, we did have a fight. You know, I was very forthcoming with this information. And I remember it did seem like the officer kind of understood me and she was talking to me very like politely, you know, and I didn't have the, oh, the officer's dragging me around or, you know, a red, no, she was really polite. And I remember even when she said that I'm going to have to arrest you, she said it very politely. She was like, you know, Brenda, at this moment, I'm going to have to arrest you for GBH. And I think that's the moment I thought, hold on, GBH, isn't that like a, a whole prison sentence? You know, I, I didn't know the law in that way, but all I knew is GBH is quite serious. So what's going on? And they arrested me in that. GBH stands for grievous bodily harm, right? Grievous bodily harm, yeah. But in my head, I didn't connect the dots. I was just like, no, this is a prison sentence. This is like, this is jail. So yeah, I was arrested. Um, I honestly don't feel like the officers were bad. They, They really did speak to me. And I remember sitting in a van going, so just so I know, right? I mean, I've been looking into like policing and stuff and... I'm guessing I can't apply to be a police officer now, can I? And they were like, oh my God, no. <laughs> they were like, well, hopefully you, 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 you know, you don't get charged and maybe you can apply. You sound, you seem like a lovely woman. And I was like, okay, thank you. <laughs> you know, um, and when that- you, when you were in the police station, you, you obviously, there came a point where what happened in the club registered, you know, being arrested for GBH, you, you were, were you charged with GBH? And what did you discover you had done? So when I was in the police station, uh, first things first, the cells. I remember the ceiling and I remember trying really hard not to look at the ceiling because it says, are you sick and tired of being sick and tired? And I was sick and tired of reading that because every time I'd look up, I would actually read it, you know, and I'm like, oh, why am I reading it again? You know? <laughs> um, and I remember I didn't have like, I didn't have a solicitor at the time. So I got a duty solicitor. Um, and I remember her explaining, you know, cause I, I had like, I, obviously hit I had a glass in my hand so obviously she got hit with a glass which cut me and cut her but at the time I had a cut and I was saying how'd I get this cut then and they were like basically the woman was like so obviously you had something in your hand did you have a drink in your hand I went yes I did I had a, a glass in my hand which I poured on her and she went okay do you remember what you did after that and I said no so she had been given all this information and she explained that the girl was in the hospital and um, she had like cuts to her face. I do remember them actually saying to me, if the glass had cut her anywhere else, like near her neck, I would have been arrested and charged for attempted murder. Now, that really got to me because I ain't trying to kill nobody. And that's not that's not how I'm brought up. Like we don't we don't do things like this. But in that moment, I remember going, okay, I'm so sorry. And I remember crying to the solicitor because I was like, I'm so sorry, but like, what would have happened if they killed my sister? I don't understand. And she couldn't answer that question because for me, it was like, that was my sister. That's somebody that I've just now reconnected with, somebody that I, I, I'm trying to build a relationship. And I feel like in that moment, looking back at it now, especially with therapy and everything, I think that I saw it as my family being ripped away in that second. Um, and I just fought. Um, and probably carrying a lot of anger from the old relationship that I had and all this other stuff that I had going on mentally, I think, because I'm always so happy 
eventually the happiness has to stop, you know, that the, the joy, there's pain inside and you, it has to come out one way. And when they charged me with GBH, they actually charged me with GBH section 18. And they told me about, you know, possibly going to prison. I'll be honest with you, Raphael, in that moment, I just kind of thought already I'm going to jail. Like there was no, like, I remember loads of people saying to me, no, it's fine. You know, it's a first time offense and, you know, you're a female and you're going to be fine. And I didn't see it like that. You know, when I saw the CCTV, it does look like I just walked over there and hit her. Do you understand? Like, so for me, I was like, well, I'm going to jail. This is it. I'm going to prison. I'm going, I'm going to prison. I remember when they gave me the CCTV, they said to me, obviously we don't want to find this on YouTube or anything like that, like on, on internet. And I said to her, do you think I want this? on the internet like I I, I literally I, I'm I'm dying right now I don't even want to look at it you know it's just that they made me watch it because it was like so I can talk about it but honestly Raphael for, for me to see that it was like nah I, I can't I wouldn't be brave enough to even put that on social media because actually when you look at it it looks like I literally am just hitting and hitting and hitting and that's probably what that happened in regards to I hit her until whatever I had in my hand stopped like broke and then I just carried on hitting her and that's a lot of anger do you know what I mean that's a lot of anger and that's a lot of things that I had to also understand where did that anger come from where did it all kind of rise from what what possessed me really to be so hurtful but then again I have to reflect on the simple fact that we see crime every single day and half of the people that are in the situation don't plan to be in a situation and I really have to reflect back on the fact that if my sister was you know I I didn't want to be the person that goes home and tells my mum that my sister was was dead and I was with her if that makes sense and that we was coming to a time where this is just people fight and people have weapons and this is what what it is and I remember just thinking you know what I I I really protected my mum I wanted to protect her and to be honest that's who I was most afraid of. I wasn't afraid of the justice system. I wasn't afraid of anything else. I was afraid of my mum. And I remember even when they charged me and let me go because they gave me bail. Um, So I got to go home. And I remember my sister picking me up and I said to her, does mum know I'm here? And she said, yeah, she's going to meet us at your house. And I remember like, you know, just the journey home was like, oh my God, like, you know, just, you know, forget that I've even been at the police station, forget that the police are telling me off. I had to go and sit down with my mother and now explain why I did what I did. And honestly, when I sat down with her, I remember I was shocked because my mum, she did say to me, look, yes, they arrested you. She said, I don't think you're going to go to jail. She said, but what was you meant to do? you know, Brenna, what was you meant to do? I've taught you guys to look after each other. And if your sister has a problem or she's being attacked, you're going to defend her. She's like, so I feel like we can fight this case. And my mum was very adamant that we're going to fight this case. It's self-defense and, you know, we're going to do this. But unfortunately for her, she was wrong too. Do you know what I mean? So I think one thing that did happen and one thing that I have realised after prison, um, there's an amazing lady called Cecilia, She's a, a a solicitor. She's an amazing solicitor. Black Sorry, woman. Brenda, before you talk to me about after prison, there come a point when you stood in the dock. Did you plead guilty and take responsibility for what Oh, yeah, happened? I pled, yeah, I pled guilty even from the police station. I, I, I said, yes, I did. I hit like I never denied not once that I, I, I put a hand on this woman. I owned up. I was like, I, I was really like I owned up to everything. Like there was I think because I was a like street wise, crime wise, there was no like way to kind of 
spin the story if that makes sense you know when you've been involved in crime you couldn't say well this happened and da, 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 and you have a, you know how to to word things there, I didn't have that Raphael I was just like yeah I did it and I really said okay this is what happened it was in the night you know I broke it down word for word there was no like there was no time for me to make something up or whatever I owned up straight away because they when they asked me did you did you hit this woman I said yes I did I did that but this is the reason why and I was trying to explain that reason but obviously by that time it's already gone gone above you know CPS and everything's take it's been taken forward so I I know the women did drop the charges from what I remember that they actually dropped the charges and didn't want to take it forward um but CPS was the one that kind of pushed for it to go forward but yeah I owned up to I owned up to it you took responsibility. You pled guilty at the court. What was the damage? Was the damage to the other girl superficial? Or are we talking, you know, sort of scarring of, of a serious nature? Because you then get sentenced. And tell me about that. She, They said she had scarring um, from when I, because I saw a picture and she had like a bandage thing on her face. I mean, I know that it was like the scars are like, they're still scars, but they're not like, they're not massive, if that makes sense. Because I know people have She's bit. She's Ugandan. I'm Ugandan. There's, she goes to clubs that I, I mean, I don't go to these clubs, but she's gone out and people have seen her and she looks fine, if that makes sense. But obviously that's traumatic for her looking in a mirror. That's traumatic for her. So I can, I can relate to that, but that's, that's all I know in regards to her scarring. But yeah, like, what was the last question actually? You pleaded guilty and you were sentenced. What was your sentence? And then just talk to me a little bit about, you, you know, your journey through prison. So I pled guilty. Originally, I remember my solicitor was saying I was looking at three to five years. GBH Section 18 had changed the law, changed so they because obviously there was all, so much more knife crime, and the, they, I think they upped it. So I kind of fell into that that category. I got sentenced to two and a half years, so eleven months inside, and then I managed to do five. Like I got out early, so I got tag, and I done five months on tag. What was it like in prison for you, Brenda? Because, you you know, up until your early teens, you were living this kind of ambitious life with a path, with a journey. Things went slightly wrong. This incident happened in a nightclub. You'd never been in trouble with the police before, apart from your kind of road riding bicycle at 11 years old. <laughs> but, but here you are. Here you are being taken from the dock down the steps to go to prison for the first time. And you mentioned at the very beginning of this how scared you were going to prison. How did you cope in prison? And, you know, people will rightly say that what you did deserved prison sentence, maybe. So you go to prison, you are being punished. How was it for you in prison? Did you feel that the punishment extended beyond the actual sentence? Because, you know, there's this fine line, isn't there, between... You're getting two and a half years. That's the punishment for the crime that you committed. But what happens to you when you get into prison? How did that manifest for you? What I would say, Raphael, is while I was on bail, there was a lot of stuff going on. So I think I lost Brenda from when I was still on bail. What people don't understand is that this fight happened. It was one day. But continuous after that, I I was getting phone calls from these women. I was being threatened. Um, I was being told that I was going to get shot. Um, if I go to certain areas and I was really starting to lose my mind because I never had this kind of issues like I, I you know I avoided gangs I avoided certain situations so for me to now be on bail with a, a pending sentence and then being threatened with 
you know, these by these girls saying this and that. You know, I was getting phone calls every other day. And it got to the point where I started, like, my friend basically said, you need to start recording these calls because you're getting really angry, Brenna. I've never seen you like this. You're getting really angry and I don't know what to say to you. And I was, I was getting, I was losing my damn mind. Like, I was literally like, like, I am the one facing a sentence. They attacked us and now I'm still... I could possibly go, get longer because like, what if I bump into these girls and we end up fighting again? And I actually remember going to the police station. Um, I managed to record the girl saying that, you know, if I'm standing in a certain area, she's made a sound effect. And I said, what does that mean? And she said, you'll be dead. You know, that's it. And she talks about guns and all this stuff in the recording. And I took it to the police station and I said, I really need you to help me. I've been arrested uh, a couple of months ago now. Um, I'm I've got I'm back and forth in court. I'm getting harassed by the girls that you know these and these are women at the time. I was 20, um, and I was like, that you know, can you listen to this recording? They're saying they're going to shoot me. You know, like I need to I need to know that I feel safe. And also, if say for example, I go somewhere and they're there and we end up fighting again, I don't want you to think that I'm just a continuous you know, just out here going and fighting people. The lady did listen to it. There was a few things that she heard, but she said that the recording wasn't as clear. I could, as clear as day here, gun shot dead in the recording. And she basically said to me that once my case was handled, then I can bring up charges against these women. And I, I'll be honest, I left that police station feeling alone. I left that police station feeling like my life was really just worth nothing. All the stuff that I'd done prior meant nothing. All the, you know, the the joy and the smiles, all of that, that, that disappeared. The smiley Brenda, the no more, the, 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 the sipping champagne Brenda was gone. I was just drinking, you know, to get drunk. I was drinking, I would get angry, you know, um, I was on edge. So by the time I got sentenced, I don't think I was me anymore. I wasn't spiritually. I wasn't there. I wasn't praying anymore. I had no faith. I had no faith in the system. I had no faith in my family. I had no faith in anyone. Um, I didn't even have faith in myself. So by the time they sentenced me, and I walked down those steps. You know, one of my poems said that it says, you know, I, I left her behind. I left her at the, at the steps. You know, I left the, the old Brenda at the steps, you know, I didn't even turn around to say goodbye to her. I walked down them steps, a new person, a person that was angry, a person that did not care for life and a person that really just felt alone. So being in the, the cells, I remember the solicitor bringing this piece of paper and that had like my sister's number and her house address, my best friend's number and her house address. And I think that's the moment it, it also hit me even more. Like this is, I have to now write to these people. There's no more phone calls. There's no more house visits. That's done, you know. And it it was it was something happened. I don't think that I don't think I had any feelings in that moment. I had there was like there was nothing happening. I cried, you know. Like there was constant tears, just constant tears. Like it was so much tears that I didn't even know where they were coming from. Like I didn't know I could cry so much, but there was no sound. It was just constant tears and by the time they put me in the van I was basically all cried out and I remember listening to magic and I'm an old I'm an old soul like I love old school like you know old old music like you know all this new stuff I don't know it takes me a while to catch up but old stuff you play that and I'm singing and I remember them playing like magic and a song came on and I um I think it's now I'm easy 
easy life Sunday morning, you know, and um, I started singing, you know, out loud. And I remember one of the off, like the people driving must have like, they were laughing. And I, I, now looking back, I think they probably thought, oh, she's used to this. She's used to this. This is a regular thing for her. But it was coping. I was trying to, trying to understand what was happening because I had left Brenda. I didn't know who I was anymore. And, you know, that song is playing your, it's evening. It was, you know, dark and we're passing like North London, Islington, you know, bars and clubs and restaurants and people are sitting down and, you know, living their life. And I remember thinking, that's it. My life, I would never get to do that again. I won't be able to sit down and have a drink. I won't be able to have a meal. This is it, it's finished. And so by the time I got to Holloway, it was like an empty person was being sentenced. It was like whoever that person was, it, she weren't Brenda. She weren't Lady Unchained. She was just a ghost of a person. And like I said, I used to wear weave. They took my wee, my wig off. Um, and that was the, another part of my identity kind of just being ripped apart. And then I remember always saying that like, when they checked me in, I remember saying, well, don't cry. Don't show any emotions you know, because you can't cry here. This is where bad people go. You can't cry here. You have to be bad now. You have to be tougher. And honestly, I remember you get that one first phone call without the pin and stuff, that, that free phone call. And I called my sister. And as soon as I spoke to her, I cried. But I was trying to speak my language. So I speak I speak my language fluently. So I, speak, I can speak Luganda very, very well. And I was trying to talk in Luganda so that everybody else didn't hear me. But what I didn't know was that there was actually a Ugandan woman um, working on servery. Um, so she overheard me and she kind of came and supported me a little bit. But to be honest with you, even though I had that support, what I found is that women in prison are very supportive. They do look after you. It's not like the films. It's not like Bad Girls or Wentworth. You know, they, they really are supportive. But again, I, I wasn't me anymore. And it got to the point where I basically decided that enough was enough. And I decided that I wasn't going to finish the sentence. And that meant me dying because I felt like the only way I can be free from this pain, from this life was to die because there was nothing left for me. You know, all the qualifications I'd done, all the experience I had, you know, that was irrelevant now because I'm a criminal and criminals either deserve to be here or dead. You know, when I, I, I was very hard on myself and I remember speaking to somebody and kind of saying, well, you know, there's no, there's no point, really. I think I put in an application because I looked at the end date, you know, when they give you the form when you first get in and it's like your your name, your prison number, your start date, your end date. And I looked at the end date and obviously if I didn't get tagged, it would have been like the following year, May. And I, I, I couldn't do it. I, I put in a... I put in a request and I said, I, I, is there any way we can talk to the judge? Like, this is the, 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 the child in me, you know, is there any way we can talk to the judge? I think there might have been a mistake, you know, um, he's looking into this, uh, get back to me when you can. And I, I remember that was the quickest application response I got, <laughs> you know, in jail. It came back and they were like, no, there's nothing we can do. And that was it. That was the decision. I, I, I appreciate that, you know, going to prison, the, the enormity of what you're about to go through, but when you say, you know, Brenda had completely changed, you were dead inside, you were cold, et cetera, you were emotionless. Are we talking about you were thinking about taking your own life or are you thinking about sort of moving up and down through the prison so bad that if anybody came at you in a violent way that you didn't care that you could lose your life in a, in a violent situation? 
No, I, I, I was taking, ready to take my own life. Like, just end it. And I, like, I, I made plans that, you know, I, I made plans. I made that, you know, I started collecting medication and, you know, just really, really thinking how this will work. But I guess something in me, ha- like something changed. Um, I do remember my sister and my best friend coming to see me. And I, I remember I had said to them, um, if I, when I get to jail, I'm going to have to camera in my hair. I'm going to have to be tough and I'm going to have to look like a bad girl. And, you know, by the time they got there, I did have my hair camera because my brain, my wig was taken. So I had no option but to camera in my hair. It wasn't a plan. And I remember them being so happy to see me and me kind of just being so still. And they were trying to ask me all these questions. And I just remember saying to them, don't come back here, OK? And they were like, what do you mean? Like, are they moving you already? And I said, no, 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 I just won't be here. And they went, oh, so where are you going to be? And I said, well, I just won't be here. And that was me trying to say goodbye to them. You know, that was me trying to say, you know, and I, I remember saying to them, you know, my best friend was like, Brenda, you can't, like, you've been through so much. Like, you you can do this. I know, I know it's hard, but you can do this. You can do this, Brenda. Like, you don't, okay, you shouldn't be here, but you you, you can do this. And I remember hearing a lot of sounds coming from them but really not listening to them because in my heart, I had already decided that this is not the way that Brenda should live. This is not the life that I was meant to live. Um, And I was really, really ready to just end it completely. Something did happen. Uh, My best friend obviously after that sent me a letter and it would have been the first letter I I received in prison. I'd learned quickly that you have to go and collect your food quick, otherwise it might not be there and you eat whatever's given to you. So I remember going to collect food and I had got this letter from my best friend. So I read like four lines um, and then they called for food. And so I went to collect my food, sat down, ate my food. I remember going to the sink to wash my plate and turning around towards my bed. And the next thing I know is that I open my eyes. I'm on the floor. Um, there's like all these doctors standing over me. Before this time, I was literally putting my hand on the Bible and saying, you know, to God, do your best in it. You're the creator. So take me away you created me so remove me from this situation and I'll put my hand on the bible and I would even threaten him like if you don't I'm just going to start praying to Allah and I'm not going to pray to you no more you know this is like me really having nothing so when I open my eyes and there's like doctors and you know Raphael in, in the hospital in a prison you don't to see a doctor or a nurse it's an application you might get to see someone it might not be the best person so for me to open my eyes and look up and there's like all these doctors and nurses I'm like whoa what's going on like you know I'm looking around like what's happening I'm trying to get up and they're like you know take it easy take it easy and I'm like look what's going on where's the letter where's my letter and they had confiscated that letter because they thought it was a suicide note and I didn't know that so they had to take me separately into another room and I remember the nurse saying asking me did you take anything you know, did you, did someone give you a roll up? Did, have you taken anything from any other inmate? And I said, no, I haven't taken anything. I just want my letter back. And they said, we can't give you the letter. You know, we have to, it's, we've got, to, we've got to read it over. We've got to check. And I said, what do you mean? And they said, Brenda, you had no pulse. Like your heart stopped beating. We called a cold red, a cold blue, a cold, that like we called every code. You was not here, you know? And I'm like, what do you mean? I wasn't here. Like, and they're like, that's why we're asking if you took something. We took the letter because we thought it was a suicide note. You you was you was not here, you know. And I think for me, that happening was what really kind of um, woke me up a little bit. Um, 
what what has happened? Had you you I know you said earlier that you you were piling up medication. Had you taken that medication or had you? Just, I hadn't you, taken it. You you just collapsed. I'd Your just body collapsed. had given up on you. I just collapsed. I literally just collapsed. The pressure and the weight of everything that you'd been through had, had taken your, your physicalness away from you. Yeah, I just collapsed. Was that the turning point, Brenda? Was that the moment where you decided that you were going to change your life or your situation? And, and was it? It was definitely a, a massive turning point for me because up until that point, you know, they would call for church and I remember laughing at them like, Phew praying here like god's not here it's like this is all the evil people like i don't want to pray with evil people so i'll never go to church um and i actually remember being very disrespectful to a priest you know a black priest at that a black female priest at that and i remember just saying don't talk to me here you know don't do it i remember because i saw her and i remember going she better not talk to me you know she better not there's so many people here do not talk to me and she came straight to me um and i was like go away like you know when i'm in jail like once someone starts shouting everyone's like oh, oh the rude girl here she's getting rude to the priest oh bad girl bad girl like and I, I didn't care about that i just didn't want the priest to talk to me because me and god had lost our relationship so she was a symbol of God and I didn't want nothing to do with her. So after that particular time when I collapsed, I remember the next day, I think it was the next day or that same week, Sunday, they called for church. And honestly, I think even the, the, the officer was like, oh, you're dressed. I was like, yeah, I'm going to church. He was like, oh, okay, come on in. You know? And I did walk in back into the church, the chapel in Holloway for the first time even. Um, I think like, the first time I went there was induction. And then I walked there this time and I saw that priest, the black lady. And I I just fell into her arms. I, I, I don't know how to explain it, but I feel like my my prison sentence, it was meant to happen. It, it, it was meant to happen. It was written somewhere, you know, that it was meant to happen like that. Because to be honest with you, that moment is just a moment that you think, maybe there's a reason why I'm here. Because even before church, I started singing every gospel song that I could remember in my little life of being in church. And I sang them in the shower. And I remember one of the women going, don't give up your day job, love. (laughs) And um, when we got to the church and I hugged the lady and she said, look, God already forgave you. I forgave you. Like, you know, it's fine. And I was like, no, 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 no. But I was so rude to you. Like, and I, I was crying at this point. Like I had forgotten about all the other women in this place I've forgotten about not showing tears and not showing sadness and I cried my eyes out and I remember being in that service and they brought in a choir outside choir and I kid you not every single song that I was trying to sing in my best church voice in the shower this choir sang those songs and I remember sitting in the church and looking around going okay God I understand I get it now I am meant to be here, but please show me what it is that you want me to do here because I don't know, you know, I don't know what I should be doing. And after that, I think things started to get a bit better. You know, I I got a job at reception. I looked at education. Um, I I remember at one point looking at knitting. So I was like, where else would I learn how to knit? (laughs) You know, Um, and then kind of completely left that and said you know what let me let me see I've done GCSEs already I've done I've done like some A-levels and I remember going to English I'm meeting this black lady uh the teacher and she she said oh this is A-level English and I said oh well I've got like 
GCSE English. Does that count? And she said, um, well, it counts for something. I don't really get a lot of people that's done their GCSEs here. So, you know, she said, sit down, write me a story. And I said, what do you want me to write about? And she said, write about prison. And I said, that's not really fair, is it? <laughs> so I'm in jail. And she went, just, just write about it. Just whatever comes to your mind, write about it. And I remember sitting there writing as much as I could. And then literally by the end of the lesson, she read it back to me. And she corrected it. It had like loads of red pens. Like grammar was crap. (laughs) um, And she went, I think you're a good writer. I'm going to accept you onto the course. And I did A-level English and I passed. And I think this time, this is when, you know, for me, things were starting to, I was starting to understand the routine. Um, You know, I'd become more friendly with women. I started to, you know, people saw me doing my hair and they were like, hey, you do hair? Like, do my hair, man. I'll buy you some backy. Do my hair. I'll buy you some this. I'm like, oh. Okay, yeah, yeah, why not? You know, like, you know, getting into the, you know, I'll do your hair, you get me something on canteen, all of this stuff that I, you know, I was kind of trying to stay away from. Um, I ended up getting a single cell in Holloway, which is, you know, you know, that doesn't happen. So I know mentally I must have been completely mad. <laughs> um, so I got a single cell um, and things just started to move a little bit smoother. You know, I remember healthcare, there was a lady in healthcare that allowed me to just come to healthcare and cry. Um, so I wouldn't cry everywhere else, but I would go to healthcare and I would just cry. You know, she would, you'd get that slip under your door. You've got an appointment at healthcare and I knew that was my appointment to cry. So I'd go there and I'd cry with her. <laughs> um, and she would just give me a coffee, you know, she will give me a hug and I'll leave. I'll go back to myself and just be like, yep, yeah, let's continue this sentence. But a lot of things started to happen, but I had also started to make friends who were being transferred to different jails. And obviously everyone's saying to me, oh, this is a, unless you're a lifer or you're on remand, you, you do get moved on. Um, and I, did, I didn't know that, you know, so I was learning that I, even though I was getting comfortable, I was about to be have to move on and go to another jail. And at the time, a lot of uh, people were going to Morton Hall and that jail was a foreign national prison for women at the time. And I remember people that were going there to me seemed British, you know, and I didn't really understand why they were going there. And a part of me, a part of me did start to think, oh God, I mean, everyone's a criminal in here. So they must be lying about having, you know, a passport, you know, like the, the judgmental side of me, this is me, Brenda starting to come back again. She's starting to remember that people are criminals and people lie, you know, and I had a lot of friends that went there that wrote to me and told me about it. You know how letters are in Joel, you know, if you want to tell somebody something, you just you just leave a space and you kind of understand, you read between the lines that something is not correct in this Joel. So I knew there was problems there. And of course, um, lo and behold, I got the knock on the door and the officer said, pack your stuff. You know, you're being transferred to Morton Hall in the morning. And I, I remember like saying, Miss, there has to be a mistake. I'm British, you know, and she went. I don't know about all of that, but you've come up on the list. You, you're getting taken tomorrow and hauled tomorrow morning, so pack up. And I said, Miss, I can't go there, though. But it's a foreign national prison. Like, I, I can't go there. Like, and it's far. Like, I can't go there. And she basically said, if I don't go, I basically will get taken to the block for basically refusing orders. And I had never been to the block, Raphael. Like, I felt like the prison cell that I was in <laughs> was the block. <laughs> that was a block enough for me I don't really I said okay okay I'll pack my stuff and I remember packing my stuff 
and crying my eyes out. And I remember women, and this is, again, the support of women, the support of, you know, people that is behind bars. I remember people banging on their doors and coming to the window and they're like, go to the window, go to the window. And I'm at the window crying and they're like, Brenda, it's going to be all right. This person's there, this person's there, that person's there, this person there. I was like, yeah, but why? Why are they sending me there? Like, are they going to try and deport me? Well, how can they deport me? I've got a passport. No, like, Brenda, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And I remember, even though they were being so nice, I remember in that moment thinking, oh, God, do they think I was, I'm lying about my passport as well? Like, just like, what I about <laughs> The full circle had, had come round. It'd come round. Um, we, we don't have that much time left, Brenda. But you've talked, when, when you went to Mortonall, I mean, the... the I suppose the end of your story, it's not the end of your story, you're still on an amazing journey. But I suppose the big pivot point was when you discovered poetry. I mean, you met this teacher who took you onto the course and you started to to craft your skill in, in writing. And that's led to who you are, Unchained Poetry. That's about you today. And I'm sorry to kind of bring this to that point, but I'm conscious of our time. Unchained Poetry, how did that start and where is it at now? Unchained Poetry started off with um, a friend sending me an application to create a a project or a business idea that works with people that have been to prison or coming from challenging backgrounds. And so um, it was like a Dragon's Den kind of thing. I remember it was the first time I had to actually write because I had the idea of Unchained already, but I'd never written it out, which is funny because I'm a writer. I should enjoy writing. But I, I guess when you leave jail, it's like, oh, God, I've been writing for so many months, you know. <laughs> you, hadn't been writing, you, you hadn't been writing poetry when you were in prison. It was only when you left prison? I wrote, I would say notes in prison. In prison, they were just notes. They were just a way to, I guess, cope with other, you know, people that did want to actually fight me in jail or officers that were acting a certain way towards me. It, it at that moment, in that moment, I didn't see it as poetry. The only time it became some kind of poem is at the end of um, my prison sentence when I'd done restorative justice, so sycamore tree, and um, you have to create something that signifies forgiveness. And I basically just went in my book that I had all these notes and I kind of put all these little bits together um, and I created this piece, which is actually now going to be in the book, uh, That's my book that's published next year and it was called I think a thin line between good and bad because you know by now I'd realized that because my whole prison sentence most of it was me being angry with myself and you know being really upset with me letting me down um and that poem kind of signifies you know you can go from a good person to a bad person in a matter of seconds you know it's not hard anybody can do it but it's how do I then become that good person again and that's what the poem was about so that was the first piece of poetry that I wrote but then when I got out there was no like poetry I wasn't I was like I'm not a poet like you know I remember people actually really seeing some of my writing and I was like no 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 no. that's not poetry don't tell people I write (laughs) you know (laughs) don't 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 tell and also because I was um I wasn't confident with my grandma still so it was for me it's like people reading I write backwards so whenever I start writing I write a poem I can say I'm writing this is the beginning by the time I get to the end I've realized that the end is actually the beginning and the beginning is the end you know so if someone reads it they won't understand it because by the time I perform it it don't sound like how it's written if that makes sense so it was literally trying to find myself and I remember when I uh, applied for this opportunity I wanted Unchained Poetry to be a mentoring program you know um, I wanted to create 
more, you know, ex-offenders that have been to been to jail and turn them into positive role models, you know, so that we can create more positive ex-offender role models so that they can then start working with people coming out of jail and basically for them to have a mentor that has already been through that journey and how to get to where that person was. Um, of course, I didn't get that. I, I got to top 10, but you had to make it to top five to get the funding. So I never got the funding. And I thought, you know what? It's written out now. It's on paper. Let me just carry on. And it really was my friends coming to my house, doing little sessions and, you know, let's write. What does Unchained mean to you? But the problem is most of my friends hadn't been to jail. So it would always be me talking and, you know, about my prison because they were so fascinated about my prison sentence, you know. So it became a thing where I realized that I needed to carry this on my own um, for a minute just as Brenda. Um, and hopefully when I meet these artists that are have been to jail, I would have already kind of, been in a position to be able to help them and guide them and really and truly it wasn't until I met Joel Taylor who told me about National Prison Radio because when I when I was in jail National Prison Radio wasn't as big as it was so it was it was just growing so I didn't actually know about National Prison Radio I knew about Kersler I knew about women in prison but I didn't know about National Prison Radio so before actually going to National Prison Radio I started going to open mics um and again not knowing, like, I'll be honest, I went to open mics and I would invite all my friends, come, I'm going to perform. And if no one showed up, Raphael, I wouldn't perform. You know, I remember them going, Brenda, uh, next is Brenda. And I'm like looking with everyone like, where is Brenda? Uh, where is this girl? You know. Um, so it's taken, it's, it's been a journey because now I can go to an event and it doesn't matter if I don't know no one or I didn't go with anybody. I'm going to meet people and I'm going to talk to them. Um, and that's, I guess, a confidence that I've felt through, I guess, National Prison Radio putting me on, you know, their first ever conference and inviting me and saying, we want you to perform. You know, before that, they put me on a show outside in all about positive role models after prison. You know, I met two, the co-hosts, my, my, the, the presenters, two guys who have been to jail and I, it fascinated me you know I'm like we're in broadcasting house do they know you got a criminal record you sure like what like are we, are we allowed to be here you know they're like yeah of course we're allowed to be here like you know it was just meeting people that were like me that have been to jail and are, are, are working you know and that, that that fascinated me because in my head I'd never this is what I wanted I wanted to meet more people that's been to jail and of course you know hearing about your story the first conference I went to that's when I I, I heard about your story and I was like what is going on what is life really you know and I think I even actually spoke to you and I was like oh my god like hello thank you so like thank you so much you know just fascinated and I think being a part of National Prison Radio um, allowed me to meet you know more ex-offenders who are doing amazing work and it kind of pushed me even more to, to 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 push myself you know to to show myself that actually there's people like Raphael Rule that are like on BBC that these are big people you know like why do you think why did you in your head even for a second believe that this was going to hold you back you need to do this and don't worry about anything else the people that you need to work with will find you you know and that's how Unchained Nights came along because Unchained Nights is you know uh, the night that showcases all the talent of artists with lived experience, you know. So I had like people contacting me through Arts Admin and saying, I want to perform at your event, you know. And I, I'm now 
a manager apparently and, and and I'm getting these phone calls and I'm like okay so you got bars what, what's your bars what are you talking about like send, send me some memos I don't care if it's not professional I'm not professional send it to me on whatsapp you know and they sent me stuff and I remember one artist in particular I had like a line that he said that I just wasn't comfortable with and I said look I, I love I love your flow definitely wanting to perform but see that line it's gonna have to come out mate I'm so sorry and I remember him going do you know what, Brenda? I'm so sorry that I wrote that when I was like 16, 17 years old. I'm a big man now. Like, obviously I don't write like that, you know? So it was like meeting all these guys, you know, that all of a sudden, you know, cause I had now been performing. I had been now getting books, like bookings and stuff in it. It was amazing. But these guys had never had this, you know, I put them on a stage and I was, I called them after going, can I get your bank account details on that? Would you need my bank account details? for? You know, very standoffish. I was like, I need to pay you for performing. They're like, oh my days, for real. This has never happened to me. You're paying me to tell my story, like my bars that I wrote in jail. And I'm like, yeah, we're going to do this. And we're going to, we're going to create more, you know, ex-offenders that, you know, want to tell this story, that want to be in the spotlight so that maybe, just maybe, People that are out here, even the younger boys that are listening to certain music that glorify certain things, maybe just maybe they can be like us and they can we can make being out of jail and staying out of jail look cool. How about that? You know, how about we're the ones that create this new change that actually people don't want to go to jail. People actually want to we can go straight to Unchained Poetry and we're going to work with them and we're going to help young people we don't have to go to jail to do that. Do you know what I'm saying? So this is why I think now I'm expanding in regards to working with Youth Offending Service, um, working with, you know, one of my artists who never went to jail, but also kind of exploring the journeys of what happens, you know, ch- children in care. How do we help them not end up in jail? You know, we we, we are, are very aware that people in care end up in prison, a lot of them. And it's one of those things where it's like, how do we prevent that? So for me, Unchained Poetry and Unchained Nights has been the making of Lady Unchained. And also the name Lady Unchained actually came from that first broadcasting house interview with Hillary and Clinton, not to be mistaken for the president. Um, you know, and they actually, well, to be honest, they I was meant to be on the show and they were meant to play my poem in Raphael. They, I wasn't meant to perform it live. And they went, so we've got a poem from... Uh, Brenda right and I said oh you're gonna play it in now yeah and I'm sitting there and they're like no 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 you're gonna perform it and I went what and so I performed track queen and I remember like looking at them and they were like oh my god like you know and they went unchained poetry lady unchained I went oh I like that name <laughs> I like that name you know so that's basically where lady unchained came from but yeah unchained nights right now we're growing unchained poetry's growing and I think for me it's the joy of it is, you know, because I do national prison radio, the joy of going into a jail and having people know my voice, you know, those are the people because that's who I need. That's who I need to understand what I do, how I do it and why, you know, why I'm doing what I'm doing. So to walk in and I say, I suppose that's, that's you now inspiring people based on this long journey or, you know, this journey that you've been on and that inspiration is, is now showing fruition. My final question, Brenda, is, and, and, and everything you've said about Unchained Nights, Unchained Poetry, your own journey, you know, works with my theme of this podcast, Second Chance. And my final question to you briefly is, what does Second Chance mean to you and for you to other people? Uh, a Second Chance, to me, it just firstly means a lot, can I just say. But 
a second chance. I think people want a second chance. But I think for me, you have to give yourself that second chance. Because if you don't give yourself that second chance, even if somebody gives you a second chance, you know, if someone brings an opportunity that is very fruitful for you and can bring you joy, you won't take it and you won't you won't manage to 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 bring the joy that you want to bring to it because you haven't given yourself that chance. You know, I remember being that person where I was given opportunities and I would either turn them down or I'll just not, you know, I'll, I'll do them rubbish because I wasn't ready. And I hadn't given myself, I hadn't given Brenda that chance to say that I am worth being given a second chance. So I think a second chance has to start with the individual. Once you give yourself that second chance and you say, actually, I deserve good things and I, you know, I can show change, you know, I think people will just open doors for you. But if you're still in a, in a, in a situation where, you're not sure, you're still confused, you know, you don't know where you're going. It's hard to get that second chance because people can give you these opportunities, but you just won't take them because you're just not ready. So for me, I think a second chance and um, and for the people I work with is, that's the one thing I do. It, it all starts with you believing in yourself, giving yourself that self-love, that self-care, you know, volunteering and showing yourself that you're worth doing certain jobs and building a name for yourself in a different way. You know, I think, that is what a second chance is. And if it has to start, it has to start with you. If it doesn't start with you, no matter what people throw at you, you're going to swerve it all the time. So I think, yeah, second chances, honestly, you start with that individual. And honestly, once you see that and believe it in yourself, it will be hard for other people to not see it in you. It'll be very hard. Brenda, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. I, I, I'm tempted to to say, oh, go on, give us a little poem, but that's unfair. And I, I would encourage people to go along to one of your nights, not where just you're performing, but some of your artists, um, etc. So if people want to do that, people want to find out more about you, about the work that you're doing, maybe even people that are listening to this who who think that they have the talent that could collaborate with you, how can they... How can they connect with you, Brenda? Um, so you can find me on Twitter at Unchained Poetry. You can find me on Instagram at Lady Unchained, or I've got a website, um, and that's um, at UnchainedPoetry.com. So all of my information is there, um, and you can get involved. There's a contact me page there, so you can definitely get involved and just listen. If you if you think that you've got the talent to do this, it starts with you again. Like contact us. Let's get you on a stage. Let's get you on a mic. But we just don't glorify stuff. That's all I ask. <laughs> Keep it clean. Brenda, thank you so much for coming on. You, you, you're a star. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Raphael. I'll speak to you soon. <laughs> I hope you found Brenda's story inspirational and testimony that life after prison can be successful and not something that defines who you are, even if the experience helps to shape the person you go on to be. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share it with your friends, family and colleagues. If you want to follow the show for updates about new episodes, just click on subscribe. Be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments. This is an independent podcast, meaning we are doing this out of passion, not pay. But we do need support to pay for the production. So please, if you want to make a small donation, click on the support link in the description at the end. If you want to advertise your products or services on this show, please get in touch. If you want to connect, 
drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by j Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest bookers are Sophie Warner and Lewis Hunt. This episode was produced by me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.